Well, friends, today we begin a new sermon series in First and Second Samuel, but I'm actually going to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Judges, and I'll explain why in just a minute. First, while you flip over there, I wonder if you'd humor me with a quick word association game. You all ready? <clears throat> when I say the word monarchy, what is the first thing that pops into your head? Don't answer out loud. When I say monarchy... What pops into your head? Now, a quick show of hands. How many of you thought of something to do with the British royal family? <laughs> yeah, it's like 80% of you guys. Why do Americans have such a fascination with that family? I don't know, but it's for real and it's undeniable. I guess it's no compliment to the British royal family, though, because Americans have also watched 44 seasons of Survivor at this point. 26 seasons of The Bachelor, and I think we're into the British royal family for much the same reason. You know, kind of an escape into this otherworldly glitz and glamour, this distraction of a family drama that's more messed up than our own, this can't-look-away-from-the-train-wreck allure of it all. In real life, I, I don't get the sense that Americans have much interest in getting a king of our own. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands this time, but I bet you, if you didn't first think British royal family, when I said the word monarchy, what you first thought of was something to do with tyranny. Because we know, if not from our history books, from Hamilton, that King George III is the bad guy. He's the bad guy. He's petty and self-involved and arrogant. He's tyrannical. And the history books are legitimately full of terrible kings. For all the mess in our politics around here, I don't think I know anybody who would rather have a king to bow to, interfering in our lives day in, day out. I wonder, have, you, have you ever consciously felt, man, I wish I had a king to rule over me? I don't think I ever have. If you haven't ever felt your need for a king, a desire to have one for yourself, I think a lot of what the Bible says about Jesus can be difficult to connect with. Jesus is well known, with good reason, for his death, for the blood that he shed as a sacrifice for sinners. That's the core of what Christians believe about him. It's what they hope for from him. Forgiveness. But just as central... So what the Bible has to say is the claim that Jesus is also a king, a king who sits on a throne, a king before whom one day every knee will bow, a king that will reign forever and ever. If you're evaluating Jesus on the front end, you need to know what makes that promise good news, not bad news. And if you've been a Christian for decades already, your growth as a Christian from this point forward is going to look like a deeper and deeper and deeper heart level awareness of why it's so wonderful to have Jesus not just as your Savior, but as your Lord. And, and if connecting with this language of kingship is difficult for you, I think it will help you to know the backstory. It'll help you to know how Jesus coming as king 
fulfills a building hope and a crying need from the history of Israel, a, 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 a need that plays out through the stories of the Old Testament from beginning to end. And nowhere more clearly than in the books of First and Second Samuel, where we're going to spend most of our time this fall. I cannot wait to introduce you to these books. They are absolutely incredible. Stories you will never forget. Some you've heard of before, some you may not have heard of before. We're going to cover all of it, or do our best anyways. But as much as I can't wait for that, I have chosen to wait <laughs> one more week. Because just as you need Samuel to understand Jesus, you need the book of Judges to understand Samuel. The book of Samuel opens during the time of the judges when there was no king in Israel. And the book of Judges, well, that book explains why, what that time was like. How things got as bad as they got among God's people. And what made the, the hope of a king so desperately important to them and ultimately to us. If Samuel helps us see why King Jesus is such good news... Judges helps us see why we need a king in the first place. So to set our stage for First and Second Samuel, I want us to spend this week on what it was like when there was no king in Israel. I'm going to introduce you to the whole book of Judges in one sermon. Now, our normal practice around here is to go verse by verse and to get down into the nitty-gritty details this is not going to be a sermon like that. You're welcome. We're not going to go that way through all 21 chapters of this book, which sadly, honestly, means you're barely going to get a taste of incredible stories about Ehud and Deborah and Gideon and Samson and the rest of this motley cast of crews known as the judges. But, but, but where, the, where the stories of judges naturally grab our attention what drives home the point of Judges? The reason that it's in the Bible in the first place is a pattern. A pattern that unfolds over and over and over, time and again, known as the Judges cycle. It's a pattern that's summed up near the beginning of the book in chapter 2, then repeats itself six times from chapter 3 to chapter 16. And this morning, to introduce you to the whole book, what I want to do is read for you the summary of this cycle and then use that summary to introduce you to the four main themes in the book of Judges, all of which packaged together help us to see why we need a king so badly. I want to begin by reading from Judges chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 7 to 19, and I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read. This is the word of the Lord. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, he died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods 
from among the gods the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then... The Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they didn't listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. And he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. This is God's word. You can be seated. These verses summarize what I mentioned earlier is known as the judges cycle. I want to use this to introduce you to the whole book in four themes, four parts to this judges cycle, four themes that this book is here to help us connect with that prepare us for the hope of a king. Theme number one is Israel's sinful Spiral. Israel's sinful spiral. I think the most striking thing about, thing about the book of Judges is how dark it is. Maybe more than any other book in all of the Bible, this book is ugly. It is brutal and bloody. The violence that plays out in these stories is absolutely shocking. And, and the shock value is absolutely intentional. This is a book that means to shock us because this is a book that's about what it looks like for a society to be ruled by nothing but the desires of whoever is strong enough to get their way. I think the best illustration of this pattern comes at the very end of the book. In chapters 17 to 21, there's there's a, a set of stories that are the climax of all that had been building, all that had gone wrong among God's people up to that point. It's a shocking story that, that, that sums up what everyday life was like in Israel back then. It's a story of a man who was on a trip through the land with his concubine, someone who was his permanent mistress, without the privileges of a wife, but with a lot of the perks, at least in this man's idea. This man is, is traveling and stops off for the night at someone's house. It was customary to offer hospitality to someone from Israel passing through your town. But no sooner are they settled into this, this, this man's house than a mob surrounds the home, beats on the door, demands that they be sent out. The owner of the house, to save his own skin, shoves his own daughter and the concubine out to the mob and says, Here, do what you want with them. And they do. The mob assaults them all night. In the morning, 
the concubine is dead. The traveler takes her body and puts it over his horse or mule and walks her home. When he gets home, he cuts her body up into four pieces that he sends to the four corners of the land, starting a civil war among Israel's tribes. And at the beginning of that story, and at the end of that story, the same statement, framing it. You want to know what this story is about? In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And again, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Israel was a place where everybody did whatever they wanted. And when everyone does what's right in his own eyes, innocent, defenseless women get literally torn to pieces. Now, friends, it would be all too easy for us to fixate on the shock value of this story, this this brutality that takes your breath away when you look closely at it, this otherworldly ugliness of it all, and think, man, am I glad I didn't live back then. I'm glad I'm not surrounded by people like that. Isn't it great we're so civilized now? And yeah, I mean, these, these stories are here to shock us, guys. They are. But the shock value of these stories is actually here to draw our attention to the starting point for all this violence and oppression. This might makes right style of living. We're meant to wonder, where does it come from? How does a people get to this point where this is something that made sense to them to do? And, and then to draw us in to look carefully at what Judges teaches. The pattern is, is in the summary that we've read from chapter 2. It doesn't start with this shocking brutality. It starts with a slip that is so easy, so familiar, if we have eyes to see it. Step number one for Israel was they forgot they could trust God. Step number one in this spiral that led to this ending was that they just forgot they could trust him. Look back with me at verse 7 in chapter 2. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who'd seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. They were good as long as the people who had been there still lived. But, verse 8, Joshua died. Verse 10, so did the rest of that generation. And so there arose a generation in Israel that that didn't know the Lord. They hadn't seen what had happened in Egypt. And it was then when they'd lost the living memory of God's goodness, his trustworthiness. It was at that point, verse 10 carries on, that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the gods of the Canaanites, the Baals. That's when they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. Do you see how simple this was? This people had history with God. He had already heard them groaning when they were enslaved in Egypt. He showed up for them when they had nowhere else to turn. He brought an empire to its knees to set them free. And he led them now to this land that he'd promised to give them. He delivered it up to them just like he said he would. Along the way, he fed them from his own hand every day with food from the sky. He guided them step by step. And he did it all in these stunning and and obvious ways as if to scream at them, I've got you. 
You can trust me. I'm for you. And they forgot all of it. Their relationship to God was a lot like the relationship of a rabid fan base to a head coach in major college football. What have you done for me lately? I know you won the championship last year, but three and three and, and eight is not going to cut it. Step one is they forget that God is good to them. They forget they can trust him. And then step two makes natural sense. Because they forgot they could trust him, step two in this spiral is they, they choose not to obey him. If I can't be sure he's for me, I'm going to go my way instead of his. When you don't trust that he's good, you don't trust his rules either. So Israel, they grab a hold of their version of what would be best for them, of what sort of future they want for themselves in this land. And then they just go shopping for gods that they think can deliver. You know, a while back we had to get some new uh, homeowner's insurance for our house. You know what we did? Like we decided what coverage we wanted. And then we went and found a broker who could show us what it would cost from all these different coverage providers. We, want, we know what we want. We know what our future needs to be. We just want the best price. And, and that's what Israel was like with their gods. Like they know what they want. They know what they think is best for themselves. We'll just go shopping on this open market. The Canaanites have got a lot of providers to choose from. We'll go find the one that makes the best sense for us, best bang for our buck. So they do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. It was summed up in chapter 2, verse 12. They abandoned him, went after these other gods. But it, it happens again and again and again throughout this cycle. So verse 7 of chapter 3, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals. And chapter 4, verse 1, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died, one of the judges he had given to deliver them. And again, chapter 10, verse 6, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines. They would go wherever they had to go, but they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. Over and over this happens throughout the book. Cycle after cycle after cycle. Now, I said before, Judges ends in one of the darkest and most chaotic moments in Israel's history. But can you see how subtly that spiral begins? How easily they stepped onto this path. When there's no Lord to trust, when there's no Lord to obey, it's every man for himself. It's dog eat dog. It's a society full of many kings, each doing what's right in his own eyes, bumping into all the other mini kings doing what's right in their eyes. It's survival of the fittest. It's might makes right. And it all starts with their forgetfulness of God's goodness and their choosing to do something God said not to do. A couple weeks back, we were on an annual McCullough vacation to meet up with the rest of the McCulloughs and our immediate family at a place in North Georgia in the foothills of the mountains called Hiawassee named for the Hiawassee River, which forms a lake called Lake Chatoog that we, we spend our week on. It's a huge lake. I mean, not like Great Lakes huge, but, you know, big enough. And anytime you go up hiking on one of these overlooks, it's everywhere. You know, you're looking out, you're seeing little fingers of it go in between all these crevices between the mountains all over the place. And it's big enough for us to spend our whole week out on it, kayaking and boating and rafting and fishing it's a lake that you can, you can easily spend a week on. It's, it's massive. But you know, 
a couple years ago, we, we were on a hike nearby on the Appalachian Trail up a, a mountain called Rocky Mountain. And a few miles up, you cross the, the headwaters of the Hiawassee River that flows down from there to make Lake Chattooke. Those headwaters where we crossed them is basically just a damp spot on the ground. It was just this little soppy, wet, kind of marshy, squishy spot with rocks around that you could step on to keep going with the trail. You could stand with feet on either side of it up there. Judges is meant to shock us with the lake at the end when everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But, but all to draw our attention back up to the top of that spiral so that we see the trickle from which that lake is formed. If we read this book and we think, how could they? We're reading it wrong. We're reading it wrong. Can you see yourself in Israel? That's the question. Can you see how easy it is for us to forget God that he has been and will be good to us. I mean, our, our modern world makes this at least as easy as it was for Israel, if not easier. I mean, how much of our time do we spend using tools that we control aimed at grabbing things we don't have yet? I mean, how many times did you open up your little triangle of glass, or rectangle rather, this week to scroll through pictures of what other people have? <laughs> Or to scroll through Prime Day offers of things you don't have yet but could buy cheap one day only. It's so easy to take for granted that we're even alive in the first place. What a miracle. I had nothing to do with that. Literally nothing to do with it. I'm just here. What a gift to have a breath even. Not to mention the, uh, a life on a planet that's so hospitable to us. It's so perfectly suited for our lives. We didn't pay anything for this place. How quickly, how easily do we then slip into focusing on what's wrong, on what we don't have yet, on what we wish were different. Kind of like water always finds its way to the lowest place. We can so often find our way down into whatever it is about our life we would change if we could. And how quickly we can give in to complaining or grumbling. This right here, judges, this is why the Bible takes grumbling so seriously. This is where it ends up. And friends, this is why we just, we can't possibly overstate the importance of memory in our fight against sin. The front lines in our battle for holiness is remembering God is good. He is good. He has given us good, not just in life, but in the gift of his own son to redeem us. We can trust him. Any rule he gives us comes from the same place that sent his son, the same love that drove Jesus to the cross, drove him to give us laws that are good for us. And a big part of the local church, our purpose in our life together is to help each other remember what is so easy to forget. It's why we have communion together. It's why we come here every single week instead of just once every now and then. We know weekly, on the regular, we need to stand here and be sung to about the goodness of God to us through Jesus. We need to be preached to. We need to hear his word read. We need to pray together so that we're shaped towards the same hopes. So that when we are weak, together we can stand strong. We're fighting together to remember God has been good, so of course his rules are good for us. And the most obvious theme in the book of Judges, 
is Israel's sinful spiral given so that we could be warned against stumbling like they did. The second theme in the book shows us just how much is at stake. And from here, I'll go much more quickly. Theme number two in this judge's spiral that the book is meant to show us is God's perfect justice. God's perfect justice. Israel's sin might be the main subject in this dark collection of stories. But God is a central character. Israel chooses to live like he's not there, but he always is. Always. And he's always watching. He's always seeing. He always cares. And he always judges evil and oppression wherever he sees it. The Lord's response in this cycle is just as consistent as Israel's disobedience. We already read of it in chapter 2, verse 14. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel when they turned against him and then against one another. And then we see it play out in the cycle. Chapter 3, verse 8. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Chapter 4, verse 2. The Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Chapter 6, verse 1. The Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And friends, I could go on if I had the time. I could show you this pattern over and over again throughout the book. When Israel turns from God, they turn against each other. And God intervenes every single time. He gives them the punishment their sins deserved. And friends, in these stories of God's judgment of sin... We're really just seeing confirmation of what the whole Bible tells us about God. His justice is always perfect. It is always unyielding. His response to sin it, and the evil that, that sin unleashes in our world, it's, it's consistent, absolutely, without exception. There is nobody so great that will not be called into account and no sin so small that it will not be accounted for because God's justice is perfect. I hope you can feel the comfort in that message if you have suffered at the hands of somebody who may never be held accountable here and now. The vast majority of those who have suffered sexual assault suffer from the hands of perpetrators who will never be brought to justice. Or I think about our brothers and sisters who lived and died as slaves in America 200 years ago. live their entire lives without hope of any change to their circumstances, watching those who fatten themselves on their labor go from strength to strength and victory to victory. The guilty go unpunished all the time in our world, but not forever. And friends, there is a challenge for us in this too. Because our commitment to justice, all of us have one, our commitment to justice tends to be real selective. God's is not. I recently saw a headline about a huge data breach at a global company that affected the privacy of millions of people. You know what I did? Kept scrolling down for the next headline. Because you know why? I didn't have an account with that company. Didn't bother me, to be honest. But this week, a couple friends sent me a crazy email ostensibly from me to them that I didn't write. 
Well, that bothered me. Somehow my, my privacy got violated, and I value justice. But I tend to value justice selectively. I think it's better probably safe to say we value justice selfishly. But God is not like that. His commitment to justice is perfect. He sees everything and every story in the judge's cycle. Every story showing God's punishment of Israel's sin. Every single one of them is a preview. It's a preview of a day that the Bible tells us is coming. A day of judgment where, where everything is revealed. Where everything will be set right. Where every dictator who has ever lived and died in luxury, feasting on the blood and sweat and tears of the people, will give an account to God. But so will we. And that sobering truth prepares us for the third theme in the judge's cycle. God's relentless love. Judges is about Israel's sinful spiral and God's perfect justice, but also God's relentless love. Just as consistently as God intervenes in judgment, just as consistently he responds with love when Israel comes back to him for help. They always do, and he always hears them. Every time God gives them over to their enemies, Israel cries out for deliverance. They realize what they've done. And every time they cry out to him, he delivers them through these figures that this book calls judges. Chapter 2, verse 18 summarizes it. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. And he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. The Lord was moved by their affliction. In a way, this book reads like a bunch of hero stories. You know, one after another, these deliverers is raised up in Israel's hour of need. And then through incredible twists and turns, somehow delivers them and they have rest for a while. Chapters 3 to 16 is where all these stories fall. There are about 12 judges who rise up one after another every time Israel cries out for help. You can read in chapter 3 about Othniel and then about Ehud, the left-handed assassin. Chapter 4, you can read about Deborah who led Israel in battle when Barak was too afraid to do it himself. In chapter 11, you can read about Jephthah. In chapters 12 to 16, you can read all about Samson, the world's strongest man, a guy who literally ripped apart a lion with his own hands, who struck down a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey, who, who once, get this, captured 300 foxes, tied torches to the tails of two at a time, and sent them running through the grain fields of the Philistines just to get back at them. These stories are incredible. But, but you read closely, and you'll see it's never about these heroes. They are, they are not good examples for your kids. <laughs> these are not story Bible-friendly kind of stories. And they aren't all that courageous or wise. They don't have any strength of their own. They're always just pointing to God who sends them and uses them to deliver his people over and over and over again. The point in all these stories is that God is the only one in the book, who's working behind the scenes of every story is God's love delivering God's people. Probably the best example of this is the story of Gideon. You can see this story starting in chapter 6. The Lord comes to Gideon to call him out to lead an army against the Midianites. And Gideon wasn't having it. In verse 15 of chapter 6, he says, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan's the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least in my father's house. I'm not that guy. Chapter 6, verse 16, the Lord said to him, but I'll be with you. I'll be with you. I'm that guy. 
Chapter 7, Gideon's gotten up his courage. He's gotten up his army. They're camped beside a spring just south of the main camp of the Midianites. And then, chapter 7, verse 2, the Lord says to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. So he tells him, Send away anybody who's afraid. Step one. Then his army goes down from 22,000 to 10,000. The Lord says, Still too many. Can't work with these guys, they're too strong. So he tells them to take them down to the water and see how they drink. Anybody who gets water in his hand and brings it up to his mouth to lap it up like a dog, they stay. Anybody who gets down with his face into the water and drinks it up straight from the source, send them home. Why? Because obviously the best fighters know to, to, to get water in their hand and lap it up like a dog, obviously. No, it's completely arbitrary. The whole point is that it's arbitrary. Now there's 300 left. And then the story takes us up to this place where you can look out into the plain beneath and see the Midianites. And the text tells us in chapter 7, verse 12, they lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. (laughs) Their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. 300 men against the sand on the seashore. And to top it all off, God sends them into battle without weapons. They're to surround this army with a trumpet in one hand and a torch covered by a jar in the other. At Gideon's word, they're to blow the trumpet, break the jar, hold up the torch, and see what happens. And so, verse 21, every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. The Lord set every man's sword against his comrade. And against all the army. Do you see what happened there? They didn't have to raise a finger to polish off the sand on the seashore. God did that. And God did it in a way that they would know God did that. Now why? Why would you tell that story in that way? Why would you make it so clear that God is the one who's doing the saving? Here's why. To show that the same God who punished them for their sin saved them from it too. When they called out to him. To show you that his love is relentless. Friends, if you can see yourself in Israel's sin, as I hope you can by now, and if you can see yourselves in in, in what you deserve in Israel's judgment, as I hope you can by now, I hope you can see yourself in Israel's deliverance too. Because all they had to do to receive God's grace was to see how badly they needed it. All they had to do was to acknowledge they were wrong when they turned against the Lord. And cry out to him for help. And every time they did, he answered them. All our hope for redemption is rooted in his love, not in our deserving. So if you know your sin is a problem, you will find more grace in God than sin in you. And everyone who calls out on the name of the Lord will be saved. The fourth and final theme in this wonderful book is Israel's persistent void. Israel's persistent void. I've already previewed this for you guys. The final words of the book. There was no king in Israel. 
No one to break that cycle of sin and judgment and redemption followed by sin and judgment and redemption. One way, one way to think about the whole point of Judges is to think about it as forming a keyhole. And the most important part, the definitive part of any lock is what's missing. All the metal around the edge is shaping something that's not there. Something that's needed to open that lock. All of the leaders that come through in Judges are showing us by what they aren't, what kind of leader Israel needs. Israel needs a leader that's not part of the problem, for example. It's a terrible thing to give a throne to somebody who's going to do whatever is right in his own eyes. They need a leader who knows God is God. They need a leader who won't just go with his own flow. They need one who will trust God, one who will obey God completely. Their judges were all too much like them. Gideon and Samson are great examples of that. I mean, Gideon, he ends up doing what God called him to, at least for a moment, a little flash in the pan. But before that, he keeps giving God one test after another just to see if he's worth trusting. Gideon didn't trust God. And Samson sure didn't obey him. Samson was a guy who just did what was right in his own eyes. Israel's Achilles heel was the fact that there were these pagans all around them, influencing them. Samson goes out and marries a pagan wife. Why? Chapter 14, verse 3. She's right in my eyes. That's what he says. She's right in my eyes. And anytime he bucks up and fights against the Philistines, it isn't for God's honor. It isn't for concern about God's people. He's provoked by one after another personal slight to him. He cares about him. Gideon didn't trust God fully. Samson certainly doesn't obey God. The best of their leaders were just caught up in the same flaws that got them into trouble to begin with. And they need a leader who's going to reign forever. Because at, at their best, these judges keep dying. Whoever the judge died, chapter 2, verse 19, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, bowing down to them. Whatever their strengths, these judges all had the same weakness. They are mortal. They aren't going to last forever. Israel needed something more. And First and Second Samuel, it, 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 these books open in this time. This is the context for the stories we're going to explore in the months ahead. But here's a spoiler alert for you guys. There is no king in Israel, even in First and Second Samuel, to be the king that Israel needed. If Judges is this book that's marking off that keyhole, think of First and Second Samuel as trying one key after another, jamming it, jamming it, jamming it. These won't go in. They don't fit. They won't open us up. They won't set us free. There is only one key to fit that lock. Only one Messiah worthy to reign forever. And the stories of Samuel are meant to whet our appetite for him. You know why Jesus reigns on the throne that he sits on today? Because he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's why God highly exalted him and gave him a name before which every knee will bow. And our King Jesus, he rules as the Lord of love. He bears wounds right now that he willingly took, us, took on for us. We have a king ruling over us who willingly died for us. He won't bleed his people dry. He shed his blood for them. That's what he came to do. And he rules as the Lord of life. He triumphed over the grave already. He rose victorious in that strife. He did it for those he came to save. We sing of his glories now because he died and he rose again. He died to bring eternal life. He lives that death may die. He reigns and he rules forever. And Lord willing, our time 
And these wonderful books and all the stories they tell us is going to show us why this gospel is such good news. Father, I pray that you would help us and prepare us now to learn what we need to from these wonderful stories and that you would help us to help one another to put into practice the things you set out for us. Help us especially to see and to love the king that you've given us. We pray now in his name. Amen.